Tonight we'll discuss some of the questions you left. Um, it was amazing. All of the questions were really good, concise, clear. That's unusual. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciated them all. Uh, so the first one. Uh, how does one practice the Eightfold Path with dedication if she or he is unable to build a foundation through sitting long, silent retreats? I thought that was a really um, interesting question, and it actually can be the subject of the next five or ten talks. Because it seems to me that the Eightfold Path, which is, as you know, the Fourth Noble Truth, laying out the path leading to the cessation of dukkha, the cessation of suffering, is very much integrated into the activities of our daily lives. It's not simply about long, intensive meditation retreats. So much of it has to do with how we live our lives. So I just wanted to touch very briefly on a few steps of the Eightfold Path to remind you of how easily it can be integrated into our lives and how important it is to do so. The first step on the path is right view or right understanding. And in some way that sets the whole direction of everything else we do, which I think is why the Buddha put it first uh, on the list. There are two kinds of right understanding. There's mundane right understanding and what we could call uh, noble right understanding. Uh, This is from the Buddha's, uh, one of the suttas, And what bhikkhus is right view? Right view, I say, is twofold. Now this next sentence is pretty interesting. There is right view that is affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening on the side of attachment. And there is right view that is noble, taintless, supermundane, a factor of the path. So right there, the Buddha is acknowledging two different kinds of right view. One right view has to do with how we're living in the world, basically with the acknowledgement of the truth of the law of karma. And that's very much part of what's in this, in this teaching on mundane right view. It's the understanding that our actions bear fruit, You know, and the wholesome fruit comes from actions rooted in non-greed, non-hatred, delusion, unwholesome fruit from the actions rooted in the defilements. So with our life in the world and this understanding of right view, yes, I'll do good actions, I'll practice good actions, I'll practice generosity, I'll practice sila. So it's the right view that these actions will bring results. So it's right understanding in that regard and critical. However, 
if we're doing the right actions for the good results, then even though it's right view, it is still tainted right, with attachment. We're, we're attached to a good result. What I find interesting here is the Buddha didn't say this is bad. He didn't say this is wrong view. Saying no, this this is a good understanding to have. Mundane right view, act wisely in the world, get good results, develop merit. But then he went on to say there's another kind of right view, right, which is the right view that is noble, taintless, super mundane, a factor of the path. And that's when we perform all the wholesome actions with the intention of letting go, the intention of non-grasping, not for the purpose of having good fruit, of having good karma come back to us. It's for the practice of letting go. And it's interesting, you know, we're, most of you are probably familiar with the list of the paramis, you know, of mindfulness and wisdom and renunciation and loving-kindness and resoluteness. Those factors in and of themselves are not paramis. They become a parami, they become a perfection when they're practiced with this noble right view. In other words, we could practice the parami of dana, or think we're practicing the parami of dana. You know, and so we practice generosity, but we're practicing for the good karma that it brings, the good result. That's not developing it as a parami. It's developing that wholesome factor, but it's the mundane right view. Yes, this will bring good result. It only becomes a parami when it's suffused with this other kind of right view, the right view that leads to letting go, to non-clinging. Does this seem reasonably clear? I, mean, I just find it very interesting because the, the Buddha is really talking about the different levels we engage with in the world, and particularly for us as lay people, where we come in and out of intensive retreat practice I think we want to understand both these levels. And he's not saying that one is bad. He's just describing this is how it works in the world. This is how it works for liberation. You know, and we want to uh, integrate both those levels of right understanding. Right thought. You know, the second step on the path. It's thoughts free of sensual desire, thoughts free of ill will, thoughts free of cruelty. So again, going back to the question, how do we integrate this step on the path when we're not taking a lot of time for intensive long retreat? Well, I think it's a pretty direct instruction, which requires a kind of attentiveness that we can bring to our daily lives, An attentiveness which acknowledges and sees clearly, well, what kind of thoughts are arising in the mind. 
know, mostly we just, as we know, you know, we're all familiar with it, mostly we're just kind of swept up by our thoughts and either just lost in them or acting on them or speaking them. But how often in our lives are we really, it's like keeping track of the kinds of thoughts that are arising in the mind. There's one, there's one sutta where the Buddha was describing his life as a bodhisattva, and he said one of the exercises he did was every time he had an unskillful thought, he'd put a stone on the right side. And every time he had a skillful thought, he'd put a stone on the left side. And he just watched this, how the various piles grew. Well, that, we may not have piles of stones, but it might be useful and a very interesting practice just to keep track of what kinds of thoughts are arising in the mind. You know, because to the degree that we can become aware of them, there's a greater impetus not to act on non-wholesome ones and to cultivate the wholesome ones. But we have to at least have the discernment of what it is that's actually happening. So I think this would be a very interesting practice to bring to the world. Right understanding, right thought, and then you know the three factors of right speech, right action, right livelihood. We've talked some, you know, about speech and also about listening. I think of all the daily practices one could do, perhaps the most transforming one would be paying attention to speech, to the practice of right speech. I mean, you don't have much chance to practice it here. So it's actually precisely being out in the world and engaged with people that we have the chance to practice this path factor. We speak a lot. You know, the number of words that come out of our mouth just in the course of one day, much less a lifetime. But how often do we really stop and consider or connect with the motivation behind our words? Why are we saying what we're saying? It's a powerful practice, and it it's a tremendous strengthening of mindfulness because it takes a lot of mindfulness to do it. You know, if, if we're not paying attention, the words spill out before we know it. You know, the Buddha gave kind of four basic guidelines of not not lying, you know, and not harsh speech, and not gossip, speaking about others, and not useless talk. Even just using those four guidelines, there's a the word for useless talk in Pali. It's one of my favorite Pali words, sampapalapa. <laughs> I mean, it sounds just like what it is, <laughs> sampapalapa. It is so amazing to me to watch, just in the course of ordinary conversation with people hanging out with friends, 
just how much is said that is totally useless. It just has no meaning. You know, it's just for the sake of something. I don't know, for the sake of talking. You know, or... So bringing mindfulness to speech, to that kind of speech, to kind of the gossip that we often like to indulge in, even when it's not malicious, it's just like talking about other people. You know, or certainly harsh speech or untruthful speech. This is a practice that doesn't have to do with being on long intensive retreats. This is practice in our lives. You know, and it's not trivial. It really can, as we practice it, it can point us right back to an understanding of motivation. You know, and we begin to see the nuances of our own motivations. This is a very subtle matter. And yet, motivation, as is expressed in some Tibetan teachings, says everything rests on the tip of motivation. You could say the whole practice rests on the tip of motivation. So knowing that, it's surprising that we don't pay more attention to the motivation behind what we do and to really see what is it rooted in. Is it rooted in loving kindness? Is it rooted in desire? Is it rooted in conceit? You know, just the I amness. Working with speech just illuminates all of this very, very clearly. And so it's, it's a powerful practice. Right livelihood. You know, basically, it's an exercise in the precepts. And so again, this is a practice that doesn't have to do with being on retreat. It has to do with how we live our lives and refining our understanding of the precepts. You know, it might be interesting just to take each one and really explore. Explore in depth what each precept really means and implies for how we live. You know, and make that a practice. Just not not by way of commandment, you know, that we should be doing it. Rather by way of just exploring, exploring our own minds, exploring our motivation, exploring how we're living in the world. Um, so, in all of this, I'm not going to go on with the others because we've talked a lot about you know, the meditative aspects of right effort, concentration, mindfulness. But with all of these, I think there's a very useful place in trying to live the Dharma you know, in our lives outside of retreat. I think there's a very useful place for study because each one of these steps on the path you know, there's a huge, there's a huge literature, Buddhists, there's a huge body of Buddhist teachings about all of this. You know, so rather than just be limited to our own probably somewhat narrow understanding of the range of the teachings, doing some study and investigating and exploring, well, what's the fullness of what these mean? Now, what's the fullness of the precepts? Well, the, there are there are 
I don't know how many, but many, many suttas just on right view. You know, so by a little study and investigation, we can really expand our own understanding. Uh, I was just recently uh, in New York, uh, His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa, the young Karmapa was there giving teachings. It's his first trip uh, to America. And this, this was something that he had written, and I, it resonated a lot with me. He said, what is most important is to use one's study of Dharma texts to bring oneself closer to the Dharma itself. This is something that each person must do for themselves, and it is what I am concentrating on, and what I am putting my main effort into. First you feel that there is some gap between yourself and the Dharma, Then you strive to make that gap smaller, to bring yourself nearer and nearer to Dharma. I do not rigidly confine my own Dharma practice to the rules dictated by any one particular tradition. Instead, I practice whatever from different traditions is clearly beneficial. I believe that others should practice in this way as well. Uh, I like it because it just kind of emphasizes both the importance of study and the integration of what we learn. Better get on to the next question. (laughs) When does reflection on causes of a mind state like anxiety stop being a way to see the impersonal conditioned nature of events and start being a justification and perpetuation of a story about myself as an anxious person? How does self-knowledge not solidify into a view of that's who I am? I think that's really an important question because we create the sense of self in so many ways. You know, the, the self is not something that's there, but rather the sense of self is created in any moment that we are identifying with what's arising. There's just phenomena arising and passing. As Munindraji, my teacher, would often say, it's just empty phenomena rolling on. But what happens? Empty phenomena rolling on, rolling on, rolling on. Oop, that's me. we, We just grab onto something. We identify with something. We cling to something. And in that moment, the sense of self has been born. So how do we work with these emotions that are so seductive? There might be anxiety, it might be fear, it might be shame, it might be unworthiness. It's usually some afflictive emotion. It could be pride, you know, where the emotion is arising out of different causes. And then if we're not mindful, we identify with it and we start creating this whole self-story. So there are a couple of levels to the investigation. And if we miss one of the levels, I think it's very easy to get caught in the self-story. So one level we could call the psychological level. You know, where 
there's a strong pattern of an emotion. It's an afflictive emotion. It's causing suffering. So we can look, you know, on a psychological level, well, what's some of the conditioning around this? You know, what's... I grew up in a certain way, certain family dynamics, whatever. We begin to understand some of the causes behind it. And of course, this is a lot the work of therapy, you know, to help unpack some of the conditioning. But if we just stay on that level, it can be very problematic because if we just stay on the psychological level, even with some deepening understanding of the causes, it's very easy to get caught up in, oh, this is who I am. Oh, this, this is my pattern. And I, I worked a lot with this, with the emotion of fear. You know, for long periods of my practice, it was coming up so strongly in so many different ways. And I understood it to some extent, you know, the conditioning, but it was still very strong and I was very identified with myself as being a fearful person. You know, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind and... And I was missing something very important. And what I was missing was actually pointed out to me by a colleague. You know, we were teaching and I was taking a walk after lunch and I was going on and on about my fear, my fear, it's so deep. And she just turned to me and she said, Joseph, it's only a mind state. You know, and it's something, of course, I've said a million times to other people. But sometimes it's the right moment to hear something. You know, well, that was the moment. It's just a mind state. That's all it is. It's arising in a moment, out of certain conditions. It's not always there. It arises. It's like a cloud formation in the sky, whether it's anxiety or fear or pride or shame or whatever it is. In particular moment, conditions arise. It's there. The cloud forms. Conditions change the cloud dissolves. We don't have to root it. And just imagine, uh, just as an image, it's, this is a surrealistic image. Imagine all the clouds in the sky with roots coming down to the earth. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> it could be a funny painting. <laughs> it's just clouds rooted. Emotions are exactly the same way. In their nature, they're not rooted to anything. They're simply arising out of conditions, dissolving. But what happens when we're not seeing them clearly with wisdom, we identify with them. Yes, this is me. This is who I am. And it's just like rooting a cloud. So we need to see this and remind ourselves Anxiety is not me, it's not mine, it's not myself. It's a mind state. That's all. If we can create or be with it with acceptance and spaciousness, it comes, it goes, it's not a problem. One of the ways we root it is when we believe it. Oh yeah, I'm such an anxious person. So that's one way of rooting it. 
another way of rooting it in a sense of self is judging it or condemning it. Oh, this shouldn't be here, or I'm such an unworthy person for having this emotion. So in both those ways, whether we're believing it or condemning it, or condemning ourselves for have it, we are strengthening the sense of self. Which is why, as I mentioned this morning, a very helpful question to ask, particularly with these emotions, what's the attitude in my mind about it? Because if there's an attitude in the mind about the emotion that we are not seeing, we are reinforcing the sense of self in it. So, little mantra for anybody who feels a self embedded in the emotion, right? The little mantra is it's just a mind state. It's just a mind state. It doesn't mean that it's not there, it is there, and it feels a certain way, and it may very well feel unpleasant. And it is just a mindset. It's an arising. It's there for some time. Conditions change. It disappears. If the pattern is strong, it may arise frequently. Another mantra. So what? So it arises frequently. It's just another arising. (laughs) Let it arise frequently. We don't have to be caught by it. Okay. How do we recognize and work with non-identification gone wrong? For example, feeling disempowered and unable to act as, as a passive observer or victim of the defilements. This view of an eye is often confused with right view, especially when trying to avoid over-efforting. Okay, so as I understood the question, if one has the tendency to over-effort we could misuse an understanding of not identifying with the defilements, right? because we want to make sure we're not over-efforting, so defilement may, may arise, and we think we're not identifying with it and being free in that way, but actually what we're doing is just getting into this passive observer, as it says, victim kind of role vis-a-vis the defilement. So what's true non-identification and what's this kind of just collapse, you know, where there's not an energy to engage? When I read this question and I reflected a little bit about it, I thought there's a confusion of mind states. And so, for example, there's some defilement arising in the mind, let's say desire or anger. So we don't, because we're afraid of over-efforting, so we just kind of take this passive uh, passive stance in the mind, oh, anger, and then kind of let it dominate us. 
thinking that that passivity is non-identification. But it actually is not non-identification. And I think you'll be very surprised to know what factors it actually is, that kind of passivity in the face of defilement. It's actually sloth and torpor. It's the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor. Usually we hear sloth and torpor and we think sleepiness or dullness of mind. That's our usual understanding of it. For me, the more interesting meaning and manifestation of those mental factors, I mean, sleepiness is it's ordinary. Everybody gets sleepy at times. It's not such a big problem. The bigger problem of sloth and torpor is not sleepiness. It's the quality of mind that retreats from difficulties. It's the retreating mind. That's that collapsing function. In the face of a difficulty, collapse. Which is just the opposite of virya. And the translation I like best for virya, I mean, sometimes it's translated as effort or energy, but the translation I really like is courage. And it's just that opposite. You know, and we know in the face of difficulty, in the face of anger or desire or fear or whatever, are we collapsing? Is there a retreat of the mind because of the difficulty? Or do we arouse the courage to meet it? Okay, let me see this. Let me understand it. Let me explore. What's the nature of fear? What's the nature of aversion? You know, courage is that strength of mind. I like the word courage as a translation for virya because it takes it out of the realm of efforting. You know, when I hear the word courage, I don't think of efforting. I think of strength, you know, or commitment, or willingness to be here. And that's exactly the quality of virya, of energy. So if you have a tendency for over-efforting, over-striving, it's not that you need to take refuge in the collapse as a way of not over-efforting. Rather begin to discern the difference between that heart-mind that's courageous and over-efforting. Those are two very different qualities. Is this clear? It's I thought it was a very interesting question because it so often it's like we get a little confused about our practice because we're misinterpreting what's happening in the mind. So we could misinterpret, you know, what's really sloth and torpor, this retreating, collapsing, as being non-identification. Right? Oh yeah, I'm just kind of pulling back from it. But it's not non-identification. Non-identification is a... That's a wise activity of mind. Not to be identified with what's happening as being self. But this retreating is not that. This retreating is really sloth and torpor. And so what we want to do is engage 
not from an efforting, but from an interest, a willingness, a courage. You know, and this is a great um, quality to practice. You know, and sometimes we can do it. We have the energy and interest to do it. Sometimes you might not, and you need just kind of to rest for a bit and then come back with this engagement. How can one cultivate metta during open awareness meditation? And then the second question, can advanced yogis bilocate? <laughs> I guess that means be in two places at one time. <laughs> okay, watch. <laughs> missed it. <laughs> you have to be really quick. <laughs> there's, again, there's something really interesting here. This is a little Abhidhamma background. In the Buddhist psychology, you know, they list different mental factors. Some there are some universal factors which are there in every moment of consciousness. Then there are some which are sometimes there, sometimes not, but ethically neutral. There's a whole group of wholesome mental factors. They're called the beautiful states of mind. There are 25 of them. 19 of them are universal, which means that in every wholesome state of mind, 19 of the 25 beautiful factors are always present. And then the other six are sometimes present, sometimes not. Okay, one other piece of Abhidhamic information. According to these teachings, there can never be unwholesome factors present when wholesome factors are present. It's either one or the other. If a wholesome factor is present, then unwholesome factors in that moment can't arise. So what does this mean? It's something very interesting. It means that in every moment of mindfulness, which is a wholesome factor of mind, all of the other 19 universal wholesome states are there. Mindful, if mindfulness is present, all the other 19 universals, wholesome universals, are present. And in any moment of mindfulness, it's never unwholesome. Okay, what are some of these 19 universals? I don't remember all of them offhand, but there's a couple that ref relate uh, to this question. So just as an example, confidence, faith, is one of the universals. Non-greed is one of the universals. Non-hatred is, is one of the universal wholesome states. Metta is one of the manifestations of this factor of non-hatred. Again, we're talking Abhidhamma language here. Right? You know, this very careful analysis of the mind and mental states and kinds of consciousness. So what this means is that 
in every wholesome mind state, in every moment of mindfulness, non-hatred is always present. Now, non-hatred doesn't always manifest as metta. It can manifest in other ways. But it's the root of metta. It's the mental factor out of which metta, this benevolent feeling towards all beings, it arises from this factor of non-hatred, adosa in Pali. So in every moment of mindfulness, the root of metta is already present. So in some way, even though there are some very specific practices, there's mindfulness practice and there's metta practice, you know, and specific ways of doing these and cultivating them, I wouldn't make kind of a hard and fast distinction between the two states. So how does one cultivate metta during uh, awareness meditation? If we're being aware, if we're being mindful, the root of the root of metta is already there. Somebody once asked Deepama, you know, our great teacher, very, very extraordinarily accomplished teacher, uh, whether she practiced metta or mindfulness. You know, when she was visiting uh, here in the States and they would see her practicing. And she said, For me there's no difference. And she said, when there's mindfulness, isn't love already there? And when there's love, aren't you already mindful? And it was just such a beautiful answer and so in line with, with the teachings. So even as we acknowledge that there are specific practices you know, to cultivate each, I think it's really helpful. And you probably have this experience because it, you know, it comes when people are reasonably experienced in the meditation. And when the awareness is strong, when the mindfulness is strong, don't you often have the flavor of it being a loving space? You know, and for myself, often, in doing what we call Vipassana, you know, but at those times when the mindfulness is very strong, you know, thoughts of, thoughts of somebody might arise in the mind and it's like arising out of a space of friendliness you know of love so just understanding both the psychology of it that non-hatred is already present in every moment of mindfulness and that that is the root of metta you know, and so you can really begin to see it more as a unity rather than it being two such different things. Um, So there's another question about compassion and mindfulness. And again, this is a little interesting. Compassion is not one of the universal wholesome states. It's one of that, that extra six that is sometimes there and sometimes not there. But there's a very, uh, there's a very uh, clear connection between mindfulness and compassion. Because when does compassion arise? 
it arises when we come close to suffering, <coughs> when we're open to suffering. Compassion is the response to suffering. That's what gives rise to that feeling of compassion, the wish to alleviate it. What is mindfulness practice other than the strengthening of growing inclusivity? Inclusivity. Right? Mindfulness is that factor which actually allows us to open to suffering. You know, because we have so many, as you know, defenses against feeling suffering. We don't like it. We don't like pain. We don't like suffering. That's the condition, the conditioning mind. And just imagine. There's a whole comic routine about this, but a stewardess coming down in an airplane, a flight attendant, giving you two choices. Pleasure, pain. Oh, I'll take pleasure. <laughs> you know, which would you choose? We choose pleasure. What makes us able to open to the suffering? What makes us able to open to the suffering is precisely mindfulness. You know, where we learn not to just go with the conditioning, to see, yes, I can be open, sometimes pleasant, sometimes painful, it's okay. And it's just that openness to what's difficult, the openness to the painful, the openness to the suffering, that gives birth to compassion. I came across one little... Where is it? I hope I brought it. This is a, one of Rio Khan's little poems. And for the longest time, I, I knew I loved it, but I could never figure out exactly what it meant <laughs> or where it might fit in a Dharma talk. But I think this is the place. So this, this is the, the little poem he wrote. I've forgotten my begging bowl, but no one would steal it. No one would steal it. How sad for my begging bowl. There's just something so touching about that. I've forgotten my begging bowl, but nobody's going to steal it, this poor old, probably dented begging bowl. Nobody even wants it. How sad for my begging bowl. And I thought, what is compassion about? Compassion is about inclusivity. It's like, you know, all the people that normally are left aside, who no one would want. You know, it's precisely that factor of compassion which, which responds to that. And what makes that possible is mindfulness. You know, because it's, it's mindfulness which opens us to both pleasant and painful, you know, to both happiness and suffering. So there's this intimate connection both between metta and awareness, between ca- compassion and awareness. Uh, and I think the practice just gets very full and integrated when we understand that it's 
in some way all of a piece. You know, they're, they're really all just feeding one another. Okay, these were two questions. These, these are big questions. Please help me understand how to use the five aggregates with six sense doors in a practical way and most effectively. And one other question. Could you please explain more about working with clinging to the aggregate of consciousness? You know, for many years, I would read the discourses and read the aggregates, because the Buddha talks about it just maybe more than anything else in his description you know, of our experience. And it always seemed so incredibly dry to me. You know, I, I just like, oh yeah, the five aggregates again. And I would just kind of s- skip over them. But then at a certain point then, it was largely through teaching. You know, was teaching is a great <laughs> impetus to actually learn some stuff. <laughs> so in teaching and just beginning to explore the aggregates and what they were and why it's so important, why the Buddha emphasized it so much, they really began to take on this incredibly rich and meaningful significance. So just as a little footnote, you know, in this series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, there is one whole part of the series where there is a talk on each one of the aggregates and an understanding of it, how to apply it in practice, so anybody who were interested could go back. I forget which number these were, but uh, that, would, that would be an interesting place to investigate more fully. Andy Olensky, who's the director at the study center and who is a Pali scholar, he just wrote an article which is going to be published in the next issue of Tricycle. And part of it had to do with his describing the aggregates. And he did it, there were a few things he said that really caught my eye as a, as a useful way of understanding them. That basically the five aggregates, you know, of form, which is sensations, physical elements, material elements, feeling, which is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, perception, which is the quality of recognition and interpretation. The next one is volition, but it really means all of the other mental factors beside feeling and perception and consciousness. So what this is, what these five aggregates are, is a description of our experience. I mean, that's what makes it so powerful. It's like the Buddha had this amazing ability to unpack the confusion of life experience. You know, somebody came up to you and said, well, who are you? I don't know, we'd be pretty hard-pressed to give an answer. Well, the Buddha had it all figured out. 
who are you? Well, <laughs> to start with the five aggregates, <laughs> and then all the different mental factors included in them. And, you know, so it's a very clear, detailed description which helps us understand the nature of our experience. Andy Olensky pointed out that four of the factors, which is, it's feeling, perception, consciousness, three of the factors, feeling, perception, and consciousness, are all based on the poly, the root of the poly word to know. Okay? Feeling, perception, and consciousness all have to do with knowing something in a certain way. So feeling knows the taste of an experience. It knows whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Perception knows in terms of recognizing what it is and interpreting what it is. Consciousness knows just in that bare sense, bare sense impression, knows a sight, knows a sound, knows a smell. Okay, so all those three are rooted in the Pali root of the verb to know. The fourth aggregate, which in Pali is sankara, it's often volition or formations, that's rooted in the Pali, the Pali root to do. So I thought that was a very interesting observation because it suggests that three of the mental aggregates have to do simply with knowing in various ways. That fourth aggregate of volition, of sankhara, of formations, is about what we do with what we know. What's our relationship to the experience? What's our intention? What's our volition? You know, and so that's why all of the other mental factors are included in this fourth aggregate. And it's really summed up by way of our investigation in that question. Okay, we know what's arising. We know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We recognize what it is. Then it's the question, what's the attitude in the mind about it? What's the mind doing about it? Right? Is it liking or disliking? Is it retreating? You know, is it meeting with courage. All of these different ways of relating to experience is this fourth aggregate. Is this stuff interesting to you? <laughs> I mean, it is to me. So I just like it when, when kind of all these pieces come together, you know, and like, so there's the experience and the theory you know, and at first the theory is just theory and it seems just very intellectual, but then we actually start applying the theory to our experience. And then, as Andy did, actually going down to the very root of the verb and to see, oh, some are about knowing, some are about doing. And then to see, yeah, that's what's happening in our experience. 
You know, it just kind of unpacks this, this mystery of life experience in such a beautiful way. So then the question, the question was, well, how can I use it practically? As with the steps in the Eightfold Path, I would really recommend, whether it's through you know, the more extensive talks on each of the aggregates or through study, really investigate you know, what it means. And then, and even while you're on retreat now, you might spend some time just emphasizing mindfulness of one or another of the aggregates. You know, they're, they're always all present. So it's not, it's not that you can separate them. But you could emphasize, for example, just the feeling tone. Spend some time of a sitting or walking around with each arising experience. Simply notice, is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? You know? So you really you, you get very practiced in being aware of that. give a lot of emphasis at times to the attitude in the mind. So we begin to see all the reactions to experience. So you might spend some time, every five minutes, what's the attitude in my mind now? What's the attitude in my mind? And so you're really learning about that fourth aggregate. The mind must somehow be taking tremendous pleasure in continually bringing up painful memories. What logic is here at work? (laughs) I really like that because I'm sure we've all had that experience. Where the mind just goes over and over painful memories and we're suffering. Why? (laughs) Why does the mind do that? Well, I think we could look at this from a few different angles. One is, it does it a lot out of habit. You know, we're just in the habit of doing it, and so it does it, and it continues to do it, and the more we do it, the stronger the habit gets, and so we just stay in this loop. So what are some ways out of the habit? Are there a few different ways of working here? Some I've mentioned uh, in the morning and in interviews. Sometimes things keep reoccurring because there is an underlying, unacknowledged emotion. So just as an example of this, suppose we're reliving some memory of being really angry at somebody. You know, and it could be anything, but we'll just take that as an example. So we're just going over and over and over and over again. It may be that there's another feeling present that we are not attending to. For example, maybe there's a feeling underneath the anger of self-righteousness. I'm really right. I mean, that person did this really terrible thing, and so we're 
feeling self-righteous about feeling angry, if we're not mindful of the self-righteousness, we could notice anger, anger, anger. It'll still be there because it's being fed by this underground spring. You know, or it might be the, a feeling of hurt underneath the anger. It could be many things. So when something keeps coming back again and again, it's worth stepping back and just looking. See, is there something underneath? Is there some other emotion here that's going on? So that's one thing to do. Sometimes things stay locked in and keep coming back. And this is on a little more maybe subtle level. Um, because we're misperceiving the emotion. You know, we think it's one thing, but it's really another. And I had this experience very strongly at one point. I was just having these waves and waves and waves of sadness. You know, I couldn't. It wasn't even about anything. It was just the emotion, but was really locked into it. And I'm noting and noticing sad, 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 sad. And then at a certain point, because it just felt very stuck to me, you know, it kept coming back again and again, I looked more closely and I saw that it wasn't sadness, that it was unhappiness. And those two emotions are close, but they're diff- <coughs> they are different emotions. It's not, it's not the same feeling. As soon as I got exactly what it was, it's like in that moment my mind could become aligned with it and in the alignment could be the acceptance and in the acceptance the whole thing washed through. You know, so if we're misperceiving, it means we're not really aligned with what's actually there and because we're not aligned we can't really be accepting of it and because we're not accepting it stays locked in. So that's another just avenue to look at. The last thing I want to mention about these kind of habitual afflictive emotions, having done these other things. And I referred to it this morning. When we've explored it, when we've been with it, you know, a thousand times already, we we really know it. Sometimes it's really helpful to take the sword of wisdom Enough. That's the, remember this morning I was talking about the yes and the no? You know, and and each one has a skillful and unskillful way. You know, unskillful yes is just indulgence. Skillful yes is acceptance, allowing. Unskillful no is with its aversion. Skillful no is really renunciation. It's just, no, I don't have to do this. This is not helpful, right? But we do it with a certain kind of strength, a certain kind of confidence. I don't need to do this. I think people are often afraid to wield that sort of wisdom out of fear that it's aversion. You know? And it might be. So that's something that you really need to look at, but it need not be. And I think there are times when having that strength of mind, we see a pattern, we know, 
I've seen this so much, I know this, it's just a habitual arising, enough. A slightly more gentle image than the sword of wisdom, but it could work equally as well, and I've used it, is the inner TV remote where you just change the channels. Okay, you're on this anger story channel or you're in this unworthy channel or whatever. (laughs) Click, you know, go to the nature channel. (laughs) You know, go to the meta channel. We actually have the ability to do that. You know, we don't have to stay locked into an unwholesome mind state. So, I recommend, (laughs) I recommend the skillful use of the remote. Okay, we went over, (laughs) there are more questions, but it's, I think, time. Maybe just in closing, I'll read this one thing from one of, Tibetan Rinpoche, his name is Zigar Kongchul. He said, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts in realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. So tomorrow is my last day of doing interviews here, uh, finishing the two months. I just wanted to say that, as always, it's really a delight. And this is such a fantastic place to practice and have such appreciation for all of your practice. Uh, So now, it's up to you. (laughs) Thank you. So let's sit for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.